0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, today is actually uh, a special day. It's, um, it's uh, the 20th uh, anniversary of uh, Reb Shlomo Karlbach's passing. Uh, and um, so he was my Rebbe, and uh, he's like a father to me. And so just these words should be uh, an aliyah for his neshama. And um, maybe we'll tie together some of these thoughts uh, and, 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 and connect it to him as well. So um I just um I want to begin with just a, a just an insight. I, I heard from my, my my brother-in-law um just about uh the nature of translation. And it's it's good to keep this in mind because I know that I often work uh in in English, um in terms of English translations, uh not all the time, but uh it's 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 important to keep this in mind if you're dealing with um, any language other than the original. And that is the following idea. Every translation is a commentary. I'll say that one more time, and we'll get into the implications of that. Every translation is a commentary. And I was just listening to this... Um, this. Uh, uh, kind of segment on um, a, a podcast, which is a very cool podcast, if you haven't heard it, called uh, Radiolab, which has all sorts of like very interesting stuff on it, and they they had a whole thing dedicated to translations. And basically, just to sum up the segment, they, they had a, a short poem in, in French, and what uh, this one person did was he went around getting other people to translate it. And at the end, he had a 700-page book of different translations for this one short poem. Wow. And, you know, some people were trying to do a very literal translation. Other people were trying to capture the spirit of it. Um, and all, all sorts of things. But what you, what you saw very clearly in that poem, and what you see very clearly, especially when we get to, you know, more, um, you know, high-stakes type... Um, uh, endeavors like translating the Torah and commentaries and things like that is that there comes a moment where every single word is so resonant and has so many different levels mm. the translator themselves has to pick which meaning they want to put down as because they only get a chance to put down one meaning, one meaning um, as a result that means that the translator has to pick between. One, two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty 10, 15, 20 different meanings. So at that point, the translation becomes a commentary because they are injecting their own creative overlay into, into the process itself. Is that, is that clear? So as soon as you leave the realm of dealing with the original text, you are already, by necessity, and I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a fact. As soon as you leave the realm of the original material, you are already dealing by necessity with a commentary on the original. Now, if the commentary is um, done by a very great teacher, then you get the benefit of not just having it translated, but having it taught by that teacher. But, but the, so that's the upside. And that happens rarely. <laughs> Most of the time, you get the, the downside, which is that, um, sort of uh, at worst, an alien theology gets put over the text itself, and you've got a contrary point of view being passed off to you as the original text. And this is all an introduction to kind of one of the points that I want to focus on right now. Um, but before I before I give you a specific example, um, let me just tell you something that I find uh, very meaningful and almost shocking in a way, which is that once a year, all of us who, who observe these things, once a year, all of us actually have a fast day because the Torah was ever translated to begin with. Hmm. That's the 10th day of the month of... Tevis, which is um, more popularly um, or widely known as a fast day because the walls of Jerusalem are surrounded. But if you actually look in the Siddur, there's several reasons why we fast on that day, and one of the reasons is because the Torah was translated, and it was translated into Greek originally, in, into a book that's known as the Septuagint, and the the Talmud discusses that translation because... It's a, it's a very remarkable story filled with miracles where a bunch of sages were put into individual rooms and told to translate it on their own. And each of them independently realized that there were certain words that were going to be totally misunderstood in the translation. And miraculously, they all arrived at the same word in order to solve the problem of miscommunication. So there was all sorts of things about that. So you would have said... So, wow, If there's so many miracles surrounding it, and there were so many great sages doing it. That actually is a holiday. No, it's actually marked as a fast day. Because the bottom line was, the imagery that's uh, passed to us is that it was like a, a lion being put into a cage. Mm-hmm. Meaning to say that on a very deep level, the, the Torah on some, to some extent was neutered. Because you weren't dealing with the original with the original thing anymore. Now that doesn't mean that. Oh, therefore, if now I I my Hebrew skills aren't great, so I'm I'm just gonna do nothing. No. That's not no. You, you have to continue. There's tons of stuff in English now. I mean, like remarkable, amazing volumes, treasures in English, and I you know I certainly will continue to to learn those texts, and I, I urge you to do the same because there's amazing, amazing resources. But we have to understand the potential difficulties as well, as we go into it. Um, and if there are things that you're challenged by, in terms of a translation, when you're reading in a language other than the original Hebrew, you have to, you have to discuss it with someone who knows something, and say, what, is it? what does this mean? I'm, I'm challenged by this idea. Like... Um, like for instance, one of the things that, and I, in general, I think the, the art scroll Chumash, is is a beautiful thing, and it really does try to stay as a literal translation, while at the same time trying to, you know, incorporate some of the nuances. You know, like another fantastic translation is the um, is the Living Torah by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, which really takes another approach. It just tries to take the um, tries to convey the the meaning without trying to stay in a literal translation mode at all. Um, So actually together, if you just need two English translations, I would say the the Art Scroll Chumash, the Stone Chumash, and the Living Torah by Ari Kaplan, if you read both of those English, then you'll you'll get a a better sense. And I'm not, God forbid, trying to um, pick on the the Art Scroll Chumash at all, but just to give you an example, when it's talking about um, certain um, certain issues of, like, nida and, and, and things like that, they, they actually use the word in English contaminated, which is like, you know, as a writer, I'm like, I, I want to pull my hair out. Like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Contaminated? It's a, what a horrible word. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is, is a level of ritual impurity. It has nothing to do with anything else, and it's something that, that comes on a man also, equally. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very excessively harsh, word that, that is almost, I think, inappropriate. I, I would, I've even thought to myself a couple of times to, to write to them to in future editions to, to change that word, just mm-hmm. because it's such an odd choice, in, in my opinion. But, um, but anyway, I want to get to something that's um, even, more, uh, even more fundamental than that, and that's the, where I've been going this whole time, which is this week's Parsha that we, we just learned is Parsha's Vayera. And Vayera, um, in other words, so just to finish that last point, just the fact is, is that every year we fast one day out of the year because the Torah was translated. In other words, and the way I understand that is we are fasting because of all of the disconnects that are happening all over the world where people think they're understanding the Torah and are... Think that they're rejecting it for good reason when they don't understand what the Torah is saying abs- at all. They have no concept of what the Torah is saying, and and you know what's you know they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, because sometimes when you em- empower someone with a little bit of information, then they think, well, I really know. If I didn't know, it would be one thing, but I really do know. But they really don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but they do know something. But they know something that's incorrect. See, one of the one of the mind-bending things that I learned one time, which was that it's possible to learn new incorrect information. <laughs> See, most of us think that the more I learn, the smarter I'm getting. <laughs> but you can also learn new incorrect things. Your mind can be a storehouse of incorrect things. <laughs> and yet people look at you as, you know, a brilliant guy. So it's 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 um. There isn't necessarily a, a, a correlation between knowing a lot of things and knowing anything really. You know, and, and in fact, if you actually know something, you should know that you know nothing. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the actual conditions of actually knowing something. Um so, so this word um, this word that I want to focus in on right now is 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 Yira. Yira um, is is translated um, tragically, tragically really, understandably. But the 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 domino effect from this translation is horrible, as fear of God. So so basically, I think that this is that this is one of the primary disconnects that the world has with Torah, that the world has with religion in general. In other words, it's sort of like, hey, everyone, we're all about fear of God. I've got a great idea. Well, why don't you join us and we'll all be afraid of God together? <laughs> like, let's, doesn't that sound like a fantastic idea? Give up all the great stuff you've been doing <laughs> and thoroughly enjoy, and let's all be afraid of God together. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know? So, so the world looks at that point of view and says, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you doing? So what's Yira? So what is Yira then? You know, if it's not fear of God. Or is it fear of God? You know, is there a dimension of that? And there actually is, actually. But the Zohar says that basically there's a spectrum called Yira. There's something called Lower Yira, and there's something called Higher Yira. Lower Yira is fear of punishment. And we'll get to that in a moment, because there's a place for that, by the way. That, there's, there's a role for that as well. But that's called the Lower Yira. The Higher Yira is, is compared to being in a king's palace. And the idea is that basically you're blowing your mind at the beauty and the infinity of the king And the last thing that you want to do is like to track your muddy boots through the king's palace. You don't want to just sort of like be running through and knocking over, you know, zillion dollar vases and, and, you know, cracking chandeliers and things like that. Like being a bull in a china shop. You're just so overwhelmed by the majesty and the awe of the king. And even more um, to the point, you don't want to do anything at all to disrupt or to disturb your relationship or your, or your closeness with the king. This is, this is Yira Shemayim. This is Yira. And, and I heard in the name of the Baal Shem Tov that if you take the letters of Yira and you rearrange them, it's the word for C, S-E-E, to, to see Hashem. In other words, in other words, real, the fullness of Yira Shemayim, is to see that you're in the presence of God, of the infinite one, who loves you to pieces, mm. right? That, that's, that this is a way of, of going through life. And, and, and this is actually the mindset that Torah is aiming at. Now remember, and then from this Yira, you develop a very high level of Ava, of love. You see, there's, there's this relationship, which is called the two wings of the dove, Right? Because the the a bird can't fly without two wings. So if you you know it's if you have just one wing, you'll go around in circles, which I would which I would connect with almost like a neurotic level of thinking, right? You're just your mind is just going over and over and over the same material, right? But if you have two wings, then you can make progress, you can fly. So what are the two wings to fly with? Yira and Ava. And what comes first? Well, in our generation, our generation is so disconnected, basically. In other words, all of us, or many of us, are starting from scratch. So any way you can get in the door, you get in the door, right? But classically speaking, like the Chernobyl Rebbe and the Meir Enayim says that one begins with Yira, which is this sense that, wow, you know, I'm in the king's palace. And then from that, you develop this love of the king, right? This love of God. You know there's a story it's one of my favorite stories but I um I I think it's appropriate to tell again which is which is that when pretty much around the time I first got married we were we were staying um in in uh in New York uh with with a couple uh friends of my wife who um were really you know they they had their own apartment and it was really they you know they were you know, Canine they were well off, and really, they, they, they had a nice thing going, and, and we were their guests. And, and they said, they gave us a key, and they said, look, here's the key, come and go as you like, do whatever you like. And then, it was really nice, and then, on Shabbos, they had a lot of guests, and they had this big, long table with, like, lots of silver. Everything was silver, and, you know, like, crystal, and everything like this, you know, you know, great food. And the host was sitting at the head of the table and was very quiet, you know? So he's just sitting at the head of the table, not saying anything really. And I was in a very talkative mood, and, you know, I'm telling stories and, 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 and divrei Torah and making jokes, all the rest. And, you know, it was just like, it was a very, very lively table. <coughs> and then I remember at the end of the meal, I, the, the host was next to me, but I walked the guests to the door and I thanked them for coming, <laughs> right? And I had this moment where I realized what I had just done, and I was humiliated. I was was completely humiliated. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, here I am, a guest in this person's home, and I'm acting like I'm the host. And then I thought to myself, wow, you know, all of us, right, we're all guests in this world. And how many of us are acting like we're the host, right? This is my world. This is my life. Like, the very premise is off. You know, a lot of times when you, when you try to discuss an important matter, where you try to think yourself out of a, a certain conundrum, like a riddle, a lot of times the, the very premise is off. Right? People start off, especially in today's society, in the Western world and everything like that, everything feeds this premise. This is your life, and this is your world. And you're the final authority, and you call all the shots. But what if it's not my world? <laughs> and what if this just this life is just a gift to me, on loan, to actually accomplish something? Right? And all of a sudden, wow, then I'm in the palace of the king. Right? Then it's, it's something else entirely. Life becomes something else entirely at that point. So, so this is the this is the the mindset. This is the mindset that that the the Torah is directing us to, and and this leads this level of yira, this level of seeing God, if you will, of of being you know just overwhelmed by the by the majesty and the greatness, and and it leads to this tremendous love of God and this closeness of God. Where you don't want anything to come between you. You don't want to do anything wrong because how why do I wanna like how can I how can I do anything wrong? Right? Because I, I you know, you don't wanna hurt the one that you love. So So this relationship is 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 captured in Shlomo Melech, King King Solomon's uh, book uh, Shir Shirim Song of Songs, which is which is the this love affair between us and God, and Rabbi Akiva says all the books of the Torah are holy, but Shir Shirim the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And the point is not he's trying to accord various status. He's giving this one gets an A, this book gets a B, that book gets an a that's that's not what he's doing when he's saying this is the holy of holies. What he's trying to say is that this is the mindset that we're supposed to be in. And this is this is where our lives are supposed to be. And I always like to throw this in because I think that this makes the point very well, which is that the Rambam is our consummate rationalist, right? Like you know, whenever a lot of times you'll get into like discussions with people who know a fair amount of Torah, and maybe they're from different schools of thought, so maybe this one's from a more Hasidic school of thought, and he'll tell you something, and then someone else will say, yeah, but the Rambam says, right? <laughs> so so what, is, so what does the Rambam say about this, right? Because he is the consummate rationalist. The Rambam says a person has to walk around lovesick with God. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, that's our consummate rationalist speaking wow. right now. Okay, so what that's saying is that's pshat. That is the basic understanding of Torah, is this mind frame. So now you understand, let's revisit this word again. As it's yirah, or which leads to avah, which is translated to the entire world as fear of God. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, is that something to fast over? I mean, you, you, you could fast an entire year over that. I mean, it's literally a fundamental disconnect. You know, I just was reading just this morning, and there's a, a book about Hasidim today. It was reviewed in the New York Times book review section um, this morning. And they're talking about Hasidim as not being universalists. So maybe they had a different word in mind, and I'm being too picky right now by what they mean about universalists. I mean, the, the, the Hasidic point of view, which is essentially, you know, the Kabbalistic point of view, right? Because what, what, is, what did the Baal Shem Tov do? He, he basically put into um, accessible form the, the, the Torahs of the Ari, which is basically the Zohar. So, so it's, it's, it, it's completely mystical. I mean, it's completely universal. It's talking about, like, okay, so maybe they're dressing in a way that is not the way you dress. But, but the, the, the philosophy of the Hasidic community is, is completely universalistic. So, it's, again, a, a fundamental misunderstanding. So, so Reb Shlomo, Allah uh, Zechar Tzadik He he was able to for so many people and me me included. Um, he was able to communicate the sweetness of Torah, and and this this amazing love that 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 is uh, captured in this in 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 what God really wants from us. You know. But we also, just not to dismiss what is the lower level of Yira, this idea of fear of punishment, right? Because the thing is is that, imagine you're in a love relationship with another human being, right? Um, If you get to the place where you think that you can do anything, where it's like, oh yeah, I told you I'd meet you at this place. Oh yeah, something better came up. Yeah, but I was waiting for you at this place. I waited for you for an hour. I, got, I was worried. I, I thought something was happening. I, I, I called you like three times. Yeah, you know, I was in the middle of like an intense conversation. So I just didn't want to... So you didn't show up and you didn't answer the phone. R- right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if this is the way you treat the one who loves you, I can guarantee you that that relationship is not going to last. If you, if, so, so, does that mean fear of punishment? Well, it means that there has to be a baseline understanding of what we would call menchlechai, which is a, a proper code of behavior of how you act with another human being. And if, if that's the case with how you act with another human being, how much more so should it be the case of how you act with the the one who made you and makes the world and who keeps the world going every single moment and who keeps you going every single moment. And that's what we call the mitzvot. That's what we call halacha. That's, that's the basic code of Menschlichheit, of, of, of understanding, of interaction. And, and, and so, so you want to make sure that you're doing your part in the relationship as well. Right? Because otherwise, the idea of, oh no, man, this is just about love and I'm just loving that can quickly segue into a very narcissistic point of view. And so it can't be that either. So there is a, an integrity to the spectrum of the lower yira and the higher yira. But the point is, it's not all about the lower yira. Which is what comes across when you translate yera as fear of God. Like, like let's just be afraid of God that sounds like the end game and, and it's not the end game that's the at, at best it's the trampoline to, to begin with right or it's just a it's just a way to guard and protect the parameters of being in a healthy relationship so so I know that um, you know, in terms of my own life, I know that uh, that I, I checked out a lot of different things, you know? Just I had a lot of, a lot of different experiences in my life. And at a certain point, I, I, I realized nothing was sweeter and nothing touched me more than, 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 than God. And Torah. And, and, and Shabbos. And these things were like the ultimate ways to connect to that, that sweetness. And the more I looked into it, the, the, the richer it became, the richer the relationship became, the more I saw to what it was that our sages have been saying for thousands of years. Remember, let's just take a moment to appreciate what, what Torah is, okay? Or just one tiny sliver of it anyway. There is no intellectual discipline in the entire world that has had the same continuity within the same paradigm, and I'll explain what I'm saying in a moment, the same continuity within the same paradigm as Torah. Meaning to say, if you look at, say, um, chemistry, or biology, or things like that, and you go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you'll see that, that you had very smart people, but they were, by today's standards, they were saying... Very wacky things, right? Now, the reality is, is that either they just didn't understand or their, their, their knowledge was just not sophisticated enough, or they were actually saying very sophisticated things, but they were working in a, just as a completely separate paradigm. But either way, their work and their research isn't relevant to today's work and research. Now, what, what in, in distinction to that, what you, what you have in Torah is the exact same paradigms and you have the work of the early masters as relevant or more relevant, believe it or not, because we say that they had the light more clearly than we have it today. They were closer to Mount Sinai or they were closer to Adam HaRishon or to Abraham Avinu or whatever it was so that they had a level of clarity which we respect even more. So so not only are all of their teachings still relevant, but then as a a, um, consequence of that, you have the work of the early great ones, and then you have geniuses working on top of their work, and then geniuses working on top of their work, and then geniuses working on top of their work. And remember, it's not just geniuses, it's holy masters. These are people who had... Had, had had realized themselves because you know with torah there's a there's a sixth sense aspect to it in other words it's not just using your mind that as you refine yourself and you become greater your levels of understanding become greater like you become more of a conduit and a vessel for higher levels of wisdom and you're able to understand it more deeply so so it's not just geniuses working on top of geniuses working on top of geniuses. It's holy people working on top of holy people. They, they, they also happen to be geniuses, You know, you know just, just to throw in an extra thing, you know? But that wasn't... That, that, you know, what, what came first? Did, did them becoming like, you know, pure vessels and then genius came in? Or did they start off as geniuses? Probably a combination. Some started off just as pure people and they received, you know, Rul HaKodesh. You know, which, you know, once they said the words, you say, wow, that's genius. But they, it's not like they could, you know, solve math problems before they said that. And other people could solve math problems before they said that. And then they said it, you know? So, you have both. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that a lot of times people say, well, you know something, you know, the Jews are so smart. You know, Freud was a Jew. You know, Einstein was a Jew. You know, all these Nobel Prize winners. You know, we, we've had that in every single generation from the very, very, very beginning. People who were outstanding, just like today, probably greater than today, right? And you know what they were doing? They were studying Torah day and night. That's, that's what they were doing. Just Torah, day and night. That was their subject. So, so what we have today in terms of the vast riches of what we have today is unlike any other intellectual field. There is no other field that can compare to the vastness of riches of Torah. There is no other field. And remember, remember this this fake controversy, completely fake controversy between Torah and science. I mean, utterly fake, utterly fake. God who created the world also created science. Science is just describing what God is doing. That's it. So, and if there's a contradiction, either you got this, the science wrong, or you didn't understand the Torah fully. That's all. It's like, you know... The, 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 you see, just, just, just so you understand what's happening, God wants to preserve free choice. So the incredible joke that God is playing on, 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 on the, the academic community or the non-believing community, the, the, the giant joke that God is playing is that God is giving out all of the secrets in terms of, and he's putting it in the language of science, of how God runs the world, right? But he's putting it out, quote-unquote, as science, So that he preserves one's free choice not to believe. So that you can say, oh, I'm into science. And this is how science works. Meanwhile, what is it? God's just telling you how he runs the world. And if you accepted it on that level, you wouldn't have any free choice anymore. So God is preserving people's free choice by putting out all of his deepest secrets in the most tangible way, but calling it something other than religion, right? I hope that point is clear. I don't know if I communicated, but I hope it is. Um, And by the way, we don't have anything called religion. That's also very important to understand. Religion is not a real word for us. Because here's what religion means. Basically, there's the world, right? And then, you know, something, there's this bonus thing called religion. And, you know, it might be nice to be a good person also. So I'll get a little religion in my life. <laughs> now I'm covered, right? Basically, I get to do my own thing. You know, who knows really what the truth is? I don't know what the truth is, but and I got a little religion in there, and I'm I'm doing good. We we just talk about reality. We say, okay, there's there's a God. Here's how God runs the world. That's that's what it is. We say that's, you know, because, because otherwise, why are we doing any of this? Just to be like. Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts? Like, who needs that? It's either true, and this is really, you're tapping into the fundamental aspects of the building blocks of reality, or you're not. If you're not, what do I need it for? You know, God's playing games with us? It's not what it is. So... You know, and let me just make one more point, and then we'll, we'll switch topics. Because I think this, this sums it up kind of clearly. You know, if you, if you want to say that all life, if you want to take a more Darwinian point of view, and you want to say that all of life came from a single cell, right? Then the question is, who made that cell... And who created the fabric of time and space for that s- cell to develop within? Right? So it gets you back to a creator. If you want to say, and the Torah says this, you know, um, in, in, in terms of the more mystical texts, we had the Big Bang Theory thousands of years ago. If you want to say that the entire universe started from a single point, which then exploded and expanded, Right? Where did that single point of matter come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from? (laughs) For it to dwell within. So again, if you want to get to the origin of life, or if you want to get to the origin of the universe, both things necessarily point you back to the moment before they happen to a creator. And if you ask a scientist, he'll tell you, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Because they can't know. And if you, if you ask him, but, you have to, but you're a scientist, you have to tell me something. Then he'll tell you, you know what he'll tell you? Well, I believe that mm-hmm. <laughs> it came from this place. See, one of the great jokes, again, is the fact that, you know the difference between an atheist, it sounds like I'm telling you a joke here, but I'm not, <laughs> the difference between an atheist and an ag- agnostic. An agnostic says, I don't know. Maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't exist. An atheist says, I know that God doesn't exist. But you know what the joke is? The joke is, is that you can't know that God exists because God created the world deliberately, on purpose, so that you can't prove that he exists. You see, that... And people, again, using their emotional um, logic, right? People think that the fact that God's existence can't be proven, that must be a sign of the weakness of God. Do you hear that? Because if God were stronger, he'd be able to make it known that he exists. But the whole point of this world is that God built this world, this entire world. Remember, the very first letter of the Torah, which is the blueprint of reality, is the letter Bez. Bez is the number two, which means there are all these twos which the world is balanced on, right? Because you can balance the entire Torah on the first letter of the Torah. And one of the most amazing things that the letter Bayes stands for is free choice. Because you can either do this or you can do that. It can go in one of two directions, right? In other words, the entire blueprint of reality is based on free choice. So in order to preserve free choice, God deliberately constructed the world so that his presence can't be proven. That was his choice. That was not a sign of weakness, God forbid. That was actually a sign of the greatest mastery, that he could be in every place at every time, directing absolutely everything, and at the same time, where is he? I can't see him. Unbelievable. You think about it, right? Like, he's everywhere at once, and then you can't actually tie him down to anything. That's a sign of the greatest mastery. The greatest mastery. Mastery. So the, the atheist, by definition, says that I know that God doesn't exist. But he can't know that God can't exist, because you can't prove that God can't exist. Just like you can't prove that God does exist. So then that, what does that mean? That means that the atheist believes, is a believer. We believe in God. They, he doesn't believe in God. But it's still a belief system. But he believes to such a great extent that he knows, which means that an atheist is actually a religious fanatic. <laughs> 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 which is somewhat hilarious. <laughs> you know? It's just you just have to think these things through. You know what I mean? Because they're all there. You know, you just have to use your brain and and think about them. And then you realize that it's sort of like, you know, okay, so you choose not to believe. So I choose to believe, but you're also a believer. You're as much a believer as I'm a believer. And I'll tell you something else. Even even the agnostic is a believer. Everyone is a believer. Because if you don't believe in something, we say Torah temet, that the Torah is truth. If you don't want to believe that, and you want to sort of like, Put your own confidence in your own point of view, and your own ability to grasp something, which I mean, I don't know why anyone would want to trust themselves on their eternal soul. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, like, why would does does really you really? I don't believe me. I'm including myself in this. You really think you're so smart? That you're willing to trust yourself on that? Like, wow. You, wow. Good for you. You've got, you've got some real self-esteem. You know, I'll tell you something. This is true. When my son was very young, my first son was very young, we got a call from the teacher. And I don't remember how old he was. But the teacher said, I, I, we need to talk about your son um, and it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, he didn't seem like he was a behavior problem, <clears throat> at least at home. So, And I'm telling you, I'm, and I'm quoting this, is 100% true. The teacher said, um, we have an issue. What's the issue? Your son, and I'm quoting now, is overconfident in math. <laughs> 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 and by the way, I had done some homework with him, And he absolutely was overconfident in math. He sat down in front of a worksheet that he didn't know anything about, and he was convinced that he knew all of it. (laughs) And as a result, he was probably legitimately hard to teach, (laughs) and the teacher became frustrated and called home. So, I mean, there is a logic to it. But when you think about it, like someone is overconfident in math, it sounds like that got to call home. It sounds absurd, and in a way it is absurd. But, but imagine, instead of being a five-year-old who's like overconfident in math, right? <laughs> You're talking about your own soul and the eternity of your own soul. And it's sort of like, "You know, I'll, I'll take care of this one." Now, does that mean that therefore, that you surrender everything that you know and think and everything like that, and you blindly walk into some wall? you know, No. It doesn't mean that either. But, you know, there's a process where you try to try to approach with intellectual honesty and openness the wisdom of the ages. Right? You, 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 a person owes it to themselves to do that and to try to figure out, well, what actually is being said here? Is there something to this? Is there a concept of truth? Right? Because remember, the whole... Western, democratic, liberal point of view, in, in the, the, the whole Enlightenment is kind of built on the notion that if you can't understand something with your rational mind, then it's superstition and therefore you have to reject it. But as science progresses, we see that there are things that are so small you can't see them with your eye, and yet they exist and that there are spheres outside there in outer space that you also can see with your eyes, and that they exist, and that there are things that people anticipate through mathematical calculations, which they can't see, and then they find out later exist, where they're able to anticipate the reality of things before they can prove them, and then we've seen repeatedly that they're able to prove them, right? Right? So 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 that's so 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 maybe so maybe there is a place where even if I can't grasp it at this moment, if I look into it more deeply, I I will see the reality to it. Um so I just want to I just want to just kind of switch tracks for a moment. I heard a beautiful thought. Um, In in the middle of this thought, he referenced Rav Soloveitchik. So so let's say it in his name. I I, I hope that the first part of this was was in fact from him. It seems from the context that it was. Um, A beautiful thought and something that I always sort of puzzled over. And this is a very nice sort of like... um, uh, philosophical understanding of of Lot's wife. Okay, so remember, this, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed, and in popular popular uh, kind of references, Sodom and Gomorrah is is kind of almost exclusively uh, referred to as a place that was like had a lot of like you know sexual. Um, uh, Excess, or just like you know, odd, odd goings on. But um, but if you actually look at what the sages say, in addition to that, as 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 important certainly was the fact that Chesed kindness was a crime. So so actually, to be hospitable was like a capital offense, or to feed a poor person was like a criminal activity. So you know, it, it's not quite as puritanical as as as. Uh, you know, as in other words, God's sort of like dismay about this place wasn't just based on people's lifestyles. It was based on the fact that, that kindness was against the law. You know, so that that's just an important dimension to understand about that place. You know, anyway, um, God saves this one family, Lot, who's uh, who's Abraham's who had been Abraham's right hand man. And is kind of like a blessing. Is kind of a uh, kind of a tragic thing because Abraham like loses his like top lieutenant. You know, um, Abra- Lot goes to to Sodom and Gomorrah to become a judge there to settle there. You know, he's a very sort of interesting, complicated guy. Like what was going on in his mind and everything like that. Um, but anyway, that's not for now. But really, through the prayers of Abraham, Lot is, is saved and his family is saved. And they're given one set of instructions, which is very intriguing, which is, don't look back. As, as the place is being destroyed, don't look back. And, you know, we have a teaching in Perkei which is an interesting teaching and kind of relates to this, which is, this is just my, my aside, which is that, you know, you're not really supposed to look at a person in their time of humiliation. You know? Like, uh, You know, someone loses a job or something like that. How do you feel? How do you feel? What's it like right now for you? You know, it's like you might part of you might be coming from a place of compassion, but you know that might not necessarily be the right time at that point. You know, you have to—it's a judgment call. Sometimes people need strength and support, but you have to know what you're doing at the same time. So, so, uh, so this idea that they're not supposed to look back at this time—that the city is being destroyed right and we have a concept in torah called mida keneged mida which means that that basically one thing is in direct correlation to the other so that if you want to understand why something is happening and they say even in our lives today if you if you are wrestling with a certain issue one of the gateways and it's not this doesn't this is not a guarantee that you're going to be able to isolate what the issue is. But nonetheless, it's a good place to start. If you're having an issue in your life, a problem in your life, ask yourself, did I do anything which, which is in that category which, which, would, which may have caused this? Hmm. Okay? So this is a tool that our rabbis have given us. And you see it all over the Torah, that when a, a, a fixing comes or a punishment comes, that often it's in direct correlation to some activity that the person had done previously. Okay? So, so the question is, Hashem says if you look behind you at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, you'll be turned into a pillar of salt, which sounds really weird and random. Like, what? A pillar of salt? Really? Like, what, is one, what does that have to do with anything? So, they're different midrashim trying to explain it, but I heard this thought in the name of Rabbi Salovechuk, which I thought was really wonderful. So, so, by bringing them out of this place and saving them when they were really the only family that got saved um, from this community, God was giving them a new chapter in their lives. This is the next new chapter in your life. This is a new beginning for you. So he was saying, you know what? Don't look back. Meaning to say, don't tie yourself to that. Don't, tie, don't, don't continue to be that. Because you're getting a new opportunity right now. You're getting a new start. Now with that in mind, all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. Do you know what salt is? Especially, even today, but what it was throughout all of history... Salt is a preservative. You know, before they had refrigerators and things like that, they would salt meat, and that would preserve the meat. So in other words, if you turn around and you look at it, in other words, if you want to, even though you're being given a new opportunity in life, and by the way, for us, every single day is a new opportunity. We just started a new year. That for sure is a new opportunity. And the reality is that every single moment is a new opportunity. Right? Because what do we say? So I heard from Rabbi Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shemin Bar Yochai, breishis be reishis, with beginnings. Out of beginnings God created the world. In other words, the world, the fabric of reality itself is literally the fabric of this thing called beginnings. That every single moment literally is a beginning, literally is a beginning. Not just a, hey, I'm giving you a pep talk right now. No, I'm talking about the actual nature of existence right now. So, here's a person who's being given a real new beginning, being saved when the entire community is getting wiped down, and they turn around because they don't want to let go of the past. And so, they become the essence of preserving, right, which is salt right salt is a preservative so they become like this monument to not letting go of the past wow. so so that's that's an interesting it's an interesting lesson for us you know sometimes we we spend our times just like our life becomes an interior monologue which is a wrestling match with the past, with our own past. And all we're trying to do is finally defeat the past and prove that I'm right. Or try not to continue to be pinned by our past, (laughs) which is another form of the same wrestling match. But you can also say, as we mentioned earlier, you know what? I'm I'm switching paradigms. I'm I'm letting go of that premise that I have to spend the rest of my life dealing with my past. You know? So I've done chuba to the extent that I can. You know what? I apologize to the people that I could. I tried to make amends to the people that I could, and I'm moving on. You know, we have something in Torah, which is a very powerful idea, which is that you have to... Remember, Yom Kippur, which is, you know, the great day of forgiveness and cleansing, is really just between God and man, right? Just human beings and God. In terms of person-to-person, Yom Kippur doesn't really work. It works only if you apologize and make amends to another person. Because, you know, like, I owe this guy 10,000 bucks... But I went to Shul on Yom Kippur, so now I don't owe him 10,000 bucks. Does that make any sense? That's not Torah. That's not, that's not how Torah works. You, if you have a debt or an obligation to another person, that remains real. And you have to appease that person. But that's not the reason why I'm bringing this up. This is the reason why I'm bringing it up. Because if you, and I'm not talking about money right now, I'm talking about hurt feelings. If you apologize to the person, and they say, I'm not accepting your apology, you have to apologize again. And then if they don't accept that, you have to apologize again. And if they don't accept that, that becomes their problem. Because all that's obligated on a person is to apologize three times. And you know, you tell that to a young kid, and they apologize... Do you forgive me? No. Do you forgive me? No. Do you forgive me? No. Okay, it's your problem. Okay. I'm not sure that's actually <laughs> what the sages had in mind. <laughs> I would venture to say it's not what they had in mind. Um, but there, what I'm trying to say is that there's an expiration date on dealing with things. That at a certain point, you're allowed to say, you know what? I did my best this is your issue right now, you know. And uh, you know, I had in my in my own life, uh, you know. I just tell you just a a, a kavana that you can have, but I don't know if you can. Actually, I think the only place you can have this kavana. Well, no, no, no. The best place to have it is at the happy meal. <laughs> That's for sure. Amen. Maybe at other Karlovac schools as well, but um, I guess you can have it. Um, at other places too, but you can't really dwell on it in the same way. I'll tell you why in a moment. When we announce the new month by Rosh Chodesh, um, Shabbos Mavorachim, the last Shabbos of every month, we bless the incoming month. And there's one line that all of Israel should be friends. And at the Happy Minion, we sing that line over and over and over and over again to one of the most exalted melodies. And, you know, for years, I. There was someone who I had apologized to a number of times, and he just was just in another place, you know, just couldn't couldn't be in that place. And I remember for years during that time, you know, when we'd sing that all of, we should all be friends, I would picture him and me together. And you know, we're very close now. Did that prayer work? I don't. I'm not saying it worked, but it's a, it's it's a, it's it's just a time. It's a time when you can think about those things. But, but what I'm trying to say is, is that there's also there's just a time to let go and not to look back. And uh, that doesn't mean that you give up on the person. But at a, at a certain point, you can say, you know what? I've done what I can. This is now your issue. And, 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 um, and that's what it is and you know i can't discuss these things without saying over just one of my all-time favorite teachings so just because it connects and just in case maybe there's one person who didn't hear when i was in in, in high school in geometry there was um i learned that uh, a line is actually not a solid construct but a, a line is actually like an infinite series of discrete dots all kind of compressed next to each other. But each dot is actually, has its own integrity and is not connected to the dot in front of it or the dot behind it. So, that, that is this concept of, of letting go. Is that, as you walk through life, you realize that you're not tied to the moment that was right before you. And the, you can you can steer in any direction. Like, for instance, if, if a person, the chas v'shalom is, right, let's say they're addicted to drugs, and they're walking to the phone, like to call their dealer, right? So maybe halfway to the phone, they're, they have some regret. They don't want to make the call, but they say, I'm already walking to the phone. But if a person remembers this teaching, that... They might be in a line, but every single dot is its own, is its own thing. And at any moment, they can steer in any direction that they want. Just because they're walking in a line right now, doesn't mean they have to continue that path. Especially if it's something that's self-destructive. One of the biggest teachings that I, I learned, you know, when in the, in traveling in the in the in the in the desert when the jews were traveling in the desert right before the red sea split it was like this amazing fake out that god did to pharaoh and the whole egyptian army he made it seem like we were lost in the desert and then when it looked like we were lost in the desert pharaoh thinks here's my last chance to get the jews and he sends all of his chariots and remember that was the that was the cutting edge of military technology right those were the hellfire missiles those were like you know that was like serious, you know, the stealth bombers, basically. You know, these like chariots, on horses, this is like a big deal. He sends them all out, and then we know that we weren't lost. And the next thing you know, they're getting washed away in, this, in the Red Sea, right? But before that was revealed that that was what God's plan was, as we're walking toward the Red Sea, God all of a sudden tells Moshe, turn around and start walking back toward Egypt. Uh what? You know, this whole thing, like all the plagues, everything, the whole, everything was about leaving Egypt. Now you're telling us in the middle, after we're finally out, to turn around and walk back to Egypt? Like, what? And then, at a certain point, God says, okay, now turn around again. And I believe in my heart, what God was doing was giving power to every single person. If they were walking back to their personal Egypts, Right? I'm picking up the phone to call an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend. It was an abusive relationship. I'm so good to be out of it. Let's just see what they're up to. (laughs) Right? I miss them. I miss them. (laughs) Right? Picking up that phone, whatever it is, heading back that God gave us the ability, as we're heading back to our own Egypts, to then turn around again and not go back. Right? Because that's what happened in the desert. We started to go back, and then God says, okay, now turn around and don't go back. So I believe that we got the power for all time that if we're heading back into the wrong place, right, to have the power and the strength to turn around again and not go back. So, Shem should bless us that we should understand really the sweetness of torah and to understand that every translation is a commentary right and that if we run across concepts or words that really seem to be like rub us the wrong way and just that uh, we don't like them and we should look into the original text and we should we should have the teachers who can open up our eyes and try to explain and by the way, you still might not like it when you hear it explained. <laughs> you know? So ask someone else then. And, and it might be something that's just an issue that you have to grapple with. That, that could be too, you know? Um, so, so, and also to understand that the end game of all of this is not to be, you know, in the afraid of God party. That, oh wow, I'm doing all this because um, I know I will be zapped at any moment. There, there is a dimension of menschlichkeit and a proper code of behavior like you would have with any loved one, right? That's halacha, those are the mitzvahs. But that's not the end game. The end game is the higher level of yira, which is this unbelievable love affair, right? Like the Rambam says, that a person has to walk around like they're lovesick with God, right? To be in that incredibly close you know, relationship. And also to understand that we're not, we're not prisoners of our past. We aren't. We aren't. And that at a certain point, you can say, you know something, that's your issue. You can do that. You can do that. If you've, if you've done your effort, right, then you're allowed to say, you know what? This is your problem. It's not my problem anymore. That doesn't mean that you give up on the person necessarily but it doesn't mean that you have to spend the rest of your waking days in a wrestling match with it. You don't have to, right? That's just the Yetsahara, just trying to throw you off kilter. And, and finally, you know, just to, just to make a conscious decision that, um, that, you know what? Today's a new day. I'm going to do my best to enjoy it. <laughs> Because that's, that's ultimately, like, ultimately what it's about. You know, God is throwing this tremendous party for us in, in, in a real way. And, you know, can you imagine throwing a surprise party for someone and they're just bummed out the whole time? You'd be bummed out too. <laughs> so part of making God happy is being happy yourself. You know? Okay. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> Question: They always give me like,
1: different
0: answers. What is the meaning of the word Israel? Sitting? What is the meaning of the word Israel? The meaning of the word Israel? Yeah. The meaning. Well, it's got a, it's got a lot of meanings. I heard one thing which I, I thought was interesting, which was to, um, you know, to struggle with God, but not just, but, but it was a very uh, interesting take on it. Not to struggle with God, meaning. Here's God, and I'm struggling with Him. Right. But to be on God's side, struggling with Him. Oh, wow. In other words, you're partners with God right. in this struggle to complete reality. <laughs> right. Right. Or to reveal His oneness. Wow. So I think that's a, 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 right. just one interesting perspective, but it's, that's a very big question, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have I to, think, yeah, uh, I keep hearing, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this person still have an aliyah. I'm not sure what that yeah. means exactly. Yeah, so basically, God is infinite, and so really the, 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 the reaches of heaven that a soul can, can ascend to are also infinite, mm. right? Just an infinity within an infinity. Remember, <coughs> mathematically, we have something called irrational numbers, which means that there are an infinite number of numbers between the numbers 2 and 3, between 3 and 4. Because there's all these irrational numbers which continue on forever. So just there, so you have infinities within infinity. Do you understand? So, so that's like um, the spiritual worlds as well. You, the, the soul within the infinity of God has... There's an infinity within that infinity where there's no end to where the soul can rise to. So when you wish on a person's yurtzeit, the anniversary of their death, or any time that their neshama should have an elevation, you know, you want them to experience ever greater revelations of God's light in the next world. So that's the blessing that you're given, giving that soul. Amen, amen. Thank you. Um, did Rosh ever use lower yura? or did he say that you need lower yura to achieve height? Yeah, lower yura is 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 basic. You, you like I say, it's it's like like you wouldn't. Make a, a date with someone, and just not show up because oh something oh yeah I just oh I just felt like going to the museum but you didn't tell me yeah because I really wanted to go to the museum but wait that's just that that's not appropriate so um, so yeah I mean Reb Shlomo you know was was very into the mitzvot because the 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 the, the, the practical. Um, performance of the mitzvot is the lower year. Like through a punishment? Like if you don't do this, this is going to happen? Well, so, so right. So it's a spectrum. You have to have the, the, the consciousness, the consciousness that this is something that's um, just, like I'm a, just like you're a guest in this world. We're all guests in this world. So there's certain house rules, if you will. So, so the mitzvot, so to speak, are the house rules. And 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 so a person has to be respectful of them, but that doesn't mean that a person's um, you know primary relationship with God is just preoccupied with if I don't do this, what's going to happen, and and this that and the other thing. They're they're using like Reb Shlomo would refer to the mitzvot as um, as divine pathways. In other words, each one of these things is this unbelievable opportunity for closeness with God. Um, So so there's actually a a very amazing teaching like this. Um, The word mitzvah is uh, mem tzadi vav he. I don't know, how's your Hebrew, is it? Okay, so so you have um, a system of gematria known as atbash, where you... um, you, you exchange certain letters without going into details right now. So, so Mem in Atbash is the letter Yud, and Tzadi in, the, in Atbash is the letter He. So, so if, you, if you use the system of Atbash for the first two letters, it actually spells out, Mitzvah actually spells out the name of God. You now have Yud-He and then Vav-He. Wow. So, the idea is, whenever you think of the name of God, the yud ke vav ke Right? You think of it going from, from top to bottom, like a ladder. Like, like the bottom he stands for this world, right? And then you have vav, which is already connecting you to the higher realms. But the higher realms are concealed, right? You, 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 you can see this world, but you can't see the higher realms. So the word mitzvah, the mem and the tsadi, are concealed, right? They're an atbash, right? But really they stand for yud and he, Right? So in other words, what are the mitzvah? They're your guides and your pathways that tie this world to the upper dimensions which are otherwise concealed. Do, do you understand? So, so, so a person, again, has to be, have what, what we call derecheretz. They have to have a, a level of respect for this world. And, and, and God explains that if you want to have derecheretz for living, the way to have Deracheretz is to to keep the mitzvot, but that the mitzvot are this pathway that are leading you to this unbelievable relationship with dimensions that are so beyond you don't even necessarily are able to fathom them because they're concealed on some level, but that the goal is to actually be in this love affair with God. That's that that is that is what we're that's. That is what Rabbi Akiva is saying when he's saying that Shir shir," Shirim, the Song of Songs, is the holy of holies. Right? So, So that's what the world misses. That's what the world misses when they see that it's sort of like, well, why can't you do that? And why can't you do that? You know? Well, I am doing something. I'm doing something really awesome right now. Something unbelievably fulfilling and transcendent right now. This is, I love this, actually. Why, I've got a question. Why aren't you doing this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, what are you trying to bring me down for? I'm doing good. So, so again, it's a, it, the, the, the fear of punishment, if you will. It's an aspect. But it's just, it's not the primary dwelling place. Yeah? Yeah. Sure. Um, And I've been, I've learned with someone who's been explaining free free choice as though it comes, free choice comes from the godly soul, and everything else you do comes from, you know, your animal soul. And so I'm having a hard time understanding how, if free choice can only come from a godly place inside you, that you could choose to do something not godly or to see something from perspective of not It sounds really complicated to me. That sounds really complicated. I, I don't know. I, I, I know that... I, I feel like I perhaps know the source that you're referring to, but it's getting too complicated for my brain. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like... You know what? You have heaven and earth, right? And... You have a microcosm of heaven and earth, which is, the human, which is the human being. You have the godly soul, which is like heaven, and then you have the physical body, which is like earth. So you have this miniature of heaven and earth in every single person. Right? So there's this aspect of revelation. That would be the heaven aspect of you, your godly soul. Right? And then you have this earth aspect of of, 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 of your consciousness, which is like your body, which covers up that other thing and allows you to have free choice. Okay, so now choose the right thing. I mean, right? I mean, that's, I, I think that's the simplicity of it, right? Like, however you figure out what the mechanics of free choice are is ultimately not as important than the fact that we have free choice. Right um, within that particular system of learning, you have to maybe get more clarity from the, from that teacher. You know, I'd have to sit in front of the text and make sure that that I'm understanding what the what the Rob is saying properly before I wanted to go into more detail into that. But the bottom line is just that we have free choice, right? And um, and like I say, God deliberately constructed the world in that way. That that's the whole plan because. Because, you see, it says that the angels gasp in envy of human beings because they can't choose to do any, anything for God. See, a human being can actually be confronted with something that's very alluring and say no to it. Or, on the other side, look at something which is very difficult to do and say yes to it. Right? An angel can't do that. And that's unbelievable. That, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that gives God, like, tremendous pleasure. And every time we're able to exercise our free choice in the proper way, we literally bring the world closer to its completion. Remember, remember, one of the fundamental teachings is that the world's not done yet. Right? Because the world that God set about to create was a perfected world. And He made us partners with Him in terms of finishing the world and getting to that place. So we're not there yet. Right? So all of this work is not just busy work. This is really, every time we overcome some sort of challenge and choose the right thing, we're literally bringing the world one step closer to finish. Anyone else? No? Okay, yeah. This, uh, this class really feeds my soul. David, you know, and uh, talk about the really fear and all love of Hashem. Classes, like, like, he's getting really fueled up, you know? Okay. During the week, do you, rec- do you, A, do you teach during the week at all? At all and B, mm-hmm. is there another class you recommend that's at a fairly high level or, you know? You know, Rabbi Wolf teaches a very deep class uh, at Mayan Yisrael that I, I know is very good. Um, I'm sure there are good classes around town. That, that one is, is, I know, very deep. Mm. Um, and uh, I would recommend listening to tapes. Rabbi Tatz? T A T Z is unbelievable. Rabbi Re'edi is unbelievable. Rabbi Aaron is beautiful. Um, there's tons and tons and tons of Torah on tape. Mm. You can listen when you drive in your car and things like that. Rabbi Wine, if you want to hear, I love Rabbi Wine. Rabbi Wine teaches Jewish history. If you don't know Jewish history, absolutely listen to Rabbi Wine. He's incredible. How do you spell his name? Uh, w E I N, Rabbi Beryl Wine. And he has tapes. He gives you an overview of history, which is so important because, basically, you realize that humanity has been struggling with more or less the same issues for many thousands of years, and when you hear a really good history class, bless you, you get a really nice perspective on kind of uh, the challenges facing us. So, it it actually helps you um, emotionally, because when you've got a grand perspective, it helps you put your own issues into perspective as well, so I, I definitely recommend uh, Rabbi Wine as well. But between those people, I think you're you're in great shape, you know. Okay, have a great week.